Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. Today, I'm going to share with you a conversation I had with Mike Julian. This is part of my mini mission of uh, talking to some folks who sell DevOps services as a way to explore sales and value proposition and marketing around horizontal market position. But before I share this conversation with Mike Julian, let me remind you of something a different Mike, Mike McDermott, CEO of FreshBooks, said not too long ago on this podcast. Um, but nine times out of 10, most entrepreneurs uh, or business owners or whatever, you know, like a uh, category of business person I'm speaking with, um, they underestimate the size of the market with whatever they're doing now. And they think the easy thing to do is, well, we'll just expand and make ourselves available to more people. And, you know, I bet you nine times out of 10, actually, you should probably focus more and go to fewer. Uh, and even if you just stayed where you are, just find a better way to execute it uh, versus, you know, going with whole cloth and going out to a new thing. And I think, I think the instincts most people have around this stuff are actually the wrong ones. Why do you think people underestimate market size? I think because they're not growing as fast as they think or they want right now. And oh, so the and that's like, you that, know, that's the convenient scapegoat. Oh, the market's not big enough. Yeah, that, that's my take. As I listen back to my conversation with monitoring specialist Mike Julian, I'm reminded of Mike McDermott's theory of why entrepreneurs lose focus on their market. Now, Mike Julian never made this mistake. And I think that's one of the very compelling parts of the story. Mike and I are online friends, and so coming into this interview, I had the benefit of some additional context and background information. When Mike and I spoke, I really wanted to focus on two things, a particular aha moment that Mike had around his right market segment, and how Mike has done lead generation for his horizontally specialized services. As you listen to Mike describe what led to that aha moment, I want you to notice his intelligent persistence. In other words, how did he deal with an initial mismatch between what he thought were his ideal buyers and what the reality turned out to be? To me, what you can hear and imagine Mike doing as, as you listen to this interview is a great example of what happens when we view ourselves as business owner first and technologist second. Now, I'm not damning with faint praise Mike's technical chops. After all, he's a published O'Reilly author, among other accomplishments. Instead, what I want you to do is to notice how having the perspective of business owner first, technologist second, translates into how you make decisions, how you deal with setbacks, and that sort of thing. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about this conversation with Mike is how he was able to cast a light on that, uh, let's call it a mindset or a perspective. So here's my conversation with Mike Julian. Mike Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So um, I don't know how known you are to my audience. Let's assume you're not known at all. Tell, tell all right. the folks listening who you are and what you do. Uh, well, my name is Mike Julian. Uh, I do a lot of things. They're all related. Um, so I'm the author of the O'Reilly's, O'Reilly's Practical Monitoring. Mm -hmm. I run the I'm the editor of the Monitoring Weekly Newsletter, and I'm a uh, independent consultant on uh, application and infrastructure monitoring. Great. And you're one guy, one man just band. One. Yep, just me. 
Okay. And you currently live in San Francisco. Uh, I do. Okay. Been here for about four years. And and you're um, may not be living there for longer. <laughs> you're being run out <laughs> yep. of run out of town on a rail. No, I'm kidding. So uh, if it's not obvious to the folks at home, Mike and I know each other. We're in a Slack room <laughs> together, so we have a little bit of shared history. So, Mike, let's talk about. Uh, let's wind the clock however far back we have to go to get to the point where you were some kind of generalist. What were you, sysadmin, developer, when you were so generalist? My, what did you my title was uh, site reliability engineer. Okay. Um, and to some companies, I was, I was a DevOps engineer. Okay. Um, I worked with a lot of the largest, most interesting, or most boring companies in the Bay Area mm-hmm. on very generalized infrastructure and scalability problems. So how far back are we talking here? Uh, the last time I was a journalist. Mm-hmm. So for, for more context, I've been in the industry for about 15 years. Okay. Um, I was a journalist up until 2016. So two years ago. Nice. Okay. So generalist DevOps SRE type person. Um, what caused you to change direction and, and narrow down and focus? So I was working for a company a company here called Taos Consulting. They're a very large body shop. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're very high end body shop, which is mm-hmm. cool, but they're nonetheless a body shop. Right. They found out that I was very good at one particular thing, monitoring. Okay. So they started sending me to various clients to work on monitoring stuff. But because no client from no client that buys a body shop wants a specialist, mm-hmm. I would do the monitoring stuff, and then I'd be doing all this other stuff too. Right. I'm like, you know, I actually really enjoy the monitoring. Um, and about this time, I decided that I was I was going to leave Taos. I was, I was done working there. And I started to look for roles as an FTE doing just monitoring. Mm-hmm. Those are actually still pretty rare. Okay. They're starting to become more and more a thing in the past couple of years, but they're still pretty rare. So <laughs> around the same time, I started getting uh, – a friend reached out and said, hey, uh, I have this huge monitoring problem. I would like to hire you to do it, but like only as a consultant. Like, okay. I just want you to tell me what to do. Okay. And I'm like, oh, well, that sounds easy. So that's what I did. <laughs> right. I, I charged like 150 bucks an hour, which was way too low. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was thrilled. I have a great testimony on the website from him as well. Uh, so that just snowballed into more and more. And more. I ran into other clients, other friends, really, who said, hey, uh, I heard about this thing you did. Like, can you come do it for me? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, sure. Why not? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that was all in the span of about six months leading up to me leaving Taos. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to decide, like, do I go, do I continue looking for an FTE role mm-hmm. or do I do this consultant thing? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I decided consulting. One of the biggest reasons behind that is that I actually really enjoy marketing. Mm-hmm. Like, I love sales. I love marketing. I love the idea of building a business. I love all the stuff that goes into business. Yeah. Uh, so becoming a consultant was really more about being able to uh, stretch my legs on all these other things that I also enjoyed in addition to monitoring. That I'm trying to think if that's common or rare among the people. I've never heard anybody say it exactly like that. And of course I, I'm excited to hear that, <laughs> but I think that is a little rare and, and very I, cool. I've never heard it mentioned that way. I've yeah. never really heard any software engineers or SREs talk about that sort of thing. Right. Mo- most of them that I talk to become consultants because they want to do just their thing, just right. their craft. Right. And for me, 
though I enjoy my craft a lot, I also enjoy a bunch of other stuff too. And it's the, all the stuff that goes into building a business is really interesting to me. So I decided like, how can I combine these two things? I think you're, you're my new poster child for <laughs> my poster boy for the, the idea that when you specialize and focus, it's not boring because you're still running a business and that's oh, yeah. this diverse range of activities. So let's roll back a little bit, Mike, and, and kind of go into more depth on a couple things. I, my audience is, you know, smart and good looking and all sorts of things, but I, I fear they may not understand monitoring uh, sure. very well. So where does that fit into the landscape of DevOps and the larger landscape of technology? So application and infrastructure monitoring really forms the basis of all software and all software operations. Uh, the, the, cons- the idea of how do I know my website is working? Mm-hmm. Well, I could, I could pop it up on a browser and check, but right. I can't do that every minute of every day. Right. And the more complex systems you have, like if you just have a single server, then, you know, by paying them and call it a day. Right. Like this, this continuous monitoring sort of thing. Right. But where I come in is when you have thousands and thousands of servers and your application is just absolutely massive, so big that one engineer can't keep the entirety, the entire thing in their head. Mm-hmm. How do you monitor such a thing? How do you know that it's broken? Mm-hmm. How do you know that it works? And one of the biggest challenges is that it's always in a state of brokenness. Mm. It's, it's never completely working. Mm. So how do we know that this semi-brokenness isn't impacting customers? Mm-hmm. And if it is, to what degree? Mm-hmm. So that's where I come in, basically helping people to understand how their software behaves and how it's uh, interact, how users are interacting with it, and how it's impacting, uh, well, basically the business. How does it impact their revenue? Right. So this is definitely going to be companies like Netflix or companies like you know big Zappos or big e commerce yep. operations. Are there other patterns of who needs this kind of help that you've seen, like company size or other kind of demographic patterns? Yeah. So I I have a. I have patterns for who I want to work with. Yes. Uh, but that's actually a subset of who needs my help. Okay. Uh, Let's start so, with the larger group to start with. So, yeah. So the larger group is, uh, I generally look at any company that has more than about 250 employees. Okay. Uh, generally at that point, especially in the engineering organization, if you have more than 50 engineers, it means you're writing a whole lot of code and your application is probably pretty complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also, by virtue of having that many people on staff, you are making pr- some pretty serious revenue. Mm-hmm. So uh, downtime and uh, lack of reliability or just general slowness in the application impacts your revenue by a large degree. So like, okay. that's, that's the primary thing I look for. Uh, generally, anyone that, anyone that has something that makes money for them needs what I have. Okay. But like, that, uh, is that something? Is. Okay, software, a software service yeah. or product. Okay. Right. Okay. So uh, SaaS and e-commerce are my two main two main segments. Got it. Okay. Okay. I think that's going to help folks understand what you do. When you're talking to a, a prospective buyer, what's your value proposition? What are you saying that makes their eyes light up? Uh, it depends on exactly what they what they're doing. Okay. Uh, for for SaaS, so it's a different pitch for SaaS or e-commerce. Okay. Um, for e-commerce, the pitch is, uh, I, I help you make more money. Okay. Um, as in, 
your website is slow. Your application mm-hmm. is slow. Uh, mm-hmm. The more slow, the more slow it is, the less money you make. Mm-hmm. Uh, by making it faster and knowing when, say, your cart uh, cart checkout process isn't working, I you can make more money. Okay, got uh, it. So That's pretty like, straightforward. Yeah, like pretty straightforward. E-commerce is great because it is so straightforward. Right. <laughs> that's, SaaS, that's, let me jump in there. That's something I noticed that a lot of developers, when they, when they, if they're interested in e-commerce at all, it's just so much easier for them to talk about value because they're so much yeah. closer to the money. Yes. Uh, so for e-commerce, it, it's great because you talk about how many people visit the site. Mm-hmm. Of that number, how many buy something? Mm-hmm. And now I know what's the average size of the order they place. Yeah. So now I know exactly how much money your uh, your whole site is making. I have heard stories of um, big e-commerce businesses having a sort of, you know, it's not dollars per minute. It's like thousands or millions of dollars per minute yes. that downtime costs them. And they know that number. I Yeah, I have, uh, I've worked for manufacturing facilities that have that number. Right. Um, and it'll be hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, five hundred thousand an hour. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, you were about to uh, launch into so, the value prop for SaaS businesses. So SaaS businesses are slightly different because where SaaS really, because SaaS is a much longer game than e-commerce. Okay. Uh, e- e-commerce is all about the the like I want someone to buy and like that's it. That's my goal. Yeah. Uh, but with SaaS, you're playing a much longer game. Okay. You have this uh, slow ramp of death to build a SaaS company. Mm-hmm. So you're playing a longer game, and you also have a bunch of competitors that are kind of doing the same thing, or they're getting into doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So you also want to win. You also want to win your customer base on um, like a reputation. Mm-hmm. So the problem is if your site is slow, if it's unreliable. Uh, if it's constantly down when they need it, then they're just going to say, screw this, I'm going to your competitor. Mm-hmm. And like that happens all the time. So the SaaS value proposition is a little different in that I talk more about retention. Okay. Uh, like, let's make sure that you may not gain any more users from my assistance, but we can at least keep the ones you have. Okay. How is that viewed from the business side of a, of a mid-sized or large SaaS? Uh, like, how do they, do they think of that as, I'm not sure what question I'm asking here, Mike, and I'm sorry for that. But is is that a, a less powerful motivator? Sure. Yeah. Let's start with that. Like, w- so when you if you're talking to somebody on the business side of things, you're not talking to a CTO, right? Or are you? Uh, usually, it's a VP. Okay. You, typically, the VP of engineering. Okay. Uh, in a, in a smaller company, I'm talking to the CTO. Okay. So you may not actually be talking to somebody in marketing or no finance. Okay. Got it. At, at least not in the early discussions. Okay. Um, if they're interested in the idea, if they're interested in the premise of what I'm pitching, then right. I say, great, there's probably other people in your company that are interested in this mm-hmm. than that you're going to have to talk to. Let's go find who they are. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they immediately know, like, oh, no, I need to go talk to Bob over marketing and yeah. Sarah and product. Yeah. Sometimes I will say, who runs product for you? Like, right. let's talk to them. Who runs marketing? Let's talk to them. Right. And I don't send a proposal until I have all this information, until right. I can say what a user is worth to you. Do okay. I send a proposal? So let me ask the question this way. Do you see a difference in how, let's talk about, you know, uh, the person from marketing and the VP of engineering. Mm-hmm. Do they, 
Do you see them seeing the world differently? Oh, they so they so very do. Okay, like can it, you can you talk about it, that a little it's more? It's amazing. Okay, um, engineering thinks in terms of effort. Okay, uh, like how much work will this be to do? Okay, uh, marketing thinks of thinks in terms of return on investment or um, revenue. Like how much more money can this make me, mm-hmm. and how much I'm going to have to spend to make it. Do you see so, in the in the engineering side of the organization? Do you reach a certain level where they start to become sympathetic they, to that, you know, that uh, revenue ROI viewpoint? Yeah, but it generally only happens at the CTO level. Okay. Um, okay. And and even there, depending on the company, it can be pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, working with SaaS companies, especially because CTOs are almost always co-founders, and they're yeah. almost always uh, the engineering co-founder. Right. So. They so, will they will ultimately start hiring marketing and like mm-hmm. marketing will sometimes report to the CTO, mm-hmm. except they have no idea what it does. Except like marketing makes us money. And like, oh, oh that that's helpful. <laughs> so yeah. in smaller companies, especially SaaS, uh, there's never a connection. Like or not not never. It is less common. Yeah. In larger companies, especially ones where uh the executive leadership or senior engineering leadership is not original. Mm-hmm. It's been, it's come from the outside, like older companies, right? They tend to be uh, experienced veterans of the industry. Yeah. So they understand how business actually functions. Do you see SaaS companies as, do you see that just as a billing model or a pricing model, or do you see it going deeper than that? For example, you know, like you could call Adobe a SaaS company. Mm-hmm. Do they, does a company like that that's adopted subscription billing operate like a company that was always a SaaS from the beginning, or do you see differences in how they think? I, I see in terms of maturity. Okay. Um, so a, a young company will almost always be, like in terms of cultural split, mm-hmm. uh, you could say a young, a young SaaS company is like 95% engineering. Mm-hmm. And sometimes this plays out in, the in the hires they have right. like they might actually have 95% of the company be engineers right but usually how it actually plays out is you'll have say half the company be engineering which in SaaS that's not uncommon mm-hmm. but the company is still very much engineering first mm-hmm. so like marketing answers to engineering which is a super bad anti pattern because engineering doesn't know shit about what marketing does right <laughs> right so however in companies like adobe yeah um, Adobe is very much a SaaS. In fact, Adobe is a fascinating business case study because they move from shipping actual physical software, like things in boxes, to SaaS, and they've done it very well. That's why I pick them as an example is I, I feel like they maybe have embraced, at Microsoft to an extent too, have embraced yeah. a different business model with shocking speed and yes. I think you could argue a lot of effectiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, companies like Adobe get it. Okay. Uh, but a large degree of that is their own history and how long they've been around. Uh, you don't you don't survive to be Adobe's age and Adobe's size without having a clue about how bis- how your business functions. Yeah. The people who who built Photoshop, there's not a lot of them there. Mm-hmm. So it's not an engineering first company anymore. Mm-hmm. It's it's a business that happens to build really cool uh, technology related products. But yeah. it's not really an engineering company. So I, I assume that has implications. Like imagine that you, Adobe was on your dream client list. I don't know mm-hmm. if they are or they're not. But let's just 
you know, make a hypothetical that they are, would you approach them differently knowing that they have this heritage as a, you know, an old school software company that's transitioned to SaaS or would you approach them just the same as any other prospect? I'd approach them the same as any other okay. prospect until I had an idea that, uh, or if I had information that would lead me to believe that I should approach them differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, if, if the senior leader I was approaching was, uh, had been there for 15, 20 years, yeah. then they would probably have a good, they would be invested in the history mm-hmm. and the pedigree of Adobe, mm-hmm. in which case I would change how I'm pitching them to, to emphasize like the things you used to do are not wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things you used to do are amazing. They got you where you are today. Mm-hmm. So like, let's embrace that, but let's also let's reach toward the future. Like you're not wrong, but you could be better. Right. Interesting. Okay. Uh, with, with younger companies, because they don't have that history at all. It's very much, everything is like bleeding edge. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's one of the reasons why I don't work with young companies. Oh, can you say more about that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> kind of got you by surprise there, didn't I? Yeah, uh, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm so happy I, you said it. I don't, I work only with mature companies. Okay. Uh, like Adobe is a very good, would be a very good um, company to go after. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, they're, I, a good, they're a good representative of the type of company that would be a good fit for yes. you. Okay. So generally a company that is uh, more than 10 years old is my kind of company. Why is that? So what it means is that because they're, they've been around long enough, they tend to take a longer-term view of things. Huh. Companies that have only been around for three or five years are very much focused on what can we do to grow at all costs. Mm-hmm. Like we just need to grow more. Mm-hmm. A company like Adobe, yeah, they're, they care about growth, but they, they're not looking at growth next quarter or next month. They're looking at growth for two years, five years from now. Okay. So they're willing to invest in projects that may take six to 12 months, whereas smaller companies, they expect a much quicker return. Okay. And the work that I do is not necessarily quick. Right. So you've been talking um, for the past few minutes about uh, insights that you have into your ideal clients that I mm-hmm. think you did not have on day one of starting no. to work for yourself. <laughs> no, not at all. Okay. And in the, in that way, you know, we're, we're all, we all go through that process. So mm-hmm. what was that process of learning like for you? Where did you start with this? Okay. People get the monitoring thing. They seem to seek me out. Maybe this can be my business. At some point yeah. you had that thought, right? I did. Absolutely. Okay. So take us from there. How did you sort of, I mean, maybe like me kind of stumble your way towards clarity? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so when I first started out, my very first client uh, was a a Y Combinator startup that contractually I cannot name. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Which is a uh, it's that was a learning lesson in itself. Don't sure. take a client you can't talk about, especially when you're starting a company. That That's makes dumb. marketing really, really hard. <laughs> right. So, like, I have this great client, and I would love to talk about them because they're fascinating. Yeah. Except I can't, and that's stupid. Okay. So they're a wide combinator company. When I first started working with them, uh, they were like maybe four or five years old. Okay. Uh, and this is really cool because they're a startup. I'm like, yes, th- these are my people. I understand startups. Okay. As a generalist, the time that you bring me in is when you're starting to grow. Mm-hmm. Because that means all the stuff that got you to where you are is now breaking. Mm-hmm. 
So I come in, I overhaul everything you do. So therefore, these mid these mid level startups were my perfect kind of target employer. Okay. So I started chasing these down, and I realized, like after a year, year and a half of spinning my wheels trying to land more of these, it just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what the crap? Why is this not working? Like they were the perfect sort of thing for me as an FTE. So surely it's the perfect sort of thing for me as a consultant. So, Except, so what kept you going during that was just what, you know, referrals or stuff that was kind of finding you. Yeah. So I had, uh, I had a couple of long-term clients okay. that were, I was doing, um, I was doing marketing work for one on the topic of monitoring. Uh-huh. Uh, they're a monitoring company. Okay. So I was providing a lot of my expertise to them in the form of marketing help. Nice. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. And yeah. then I had a, um, a friend had approached me. He had just taken a job at a, um, a very large, old, stodgy company. Okay. And he needed my help as a, basically as a journalist. Okay. Um, and sure. I started out doing stuff for him and then I transitioned all that to giving him advice. Okay. So now I have advisory retainers with him and that works great. Great. Okay. So you, you had this sort of, uh, you know, foundation of business and then you're trying to pr- be more proactive and pursue mm-hmm. the kind of clients you thought would be a good fit. These mid-stage startups. Yep. Okay. So what I, what I finally realized is that uh, another nuance about how the market works is that when you, these, these startups, they have a tendency to build things themselves or at least think that they know what they're doing. Why do they need outside help? Right. So they weren't hiring me. The reason I got the first one was almost a fluke. Like it was because I had someone inside that needed to hire FTEs, but couldn't at the time. So he brought in me. They were over a barrel. Got it. Right. So it was just total coincidence that I even landed the first one and trying to land more. It never, it never worked. And yeah. the, the lesson I learned there was that the reason I'm a good FTE for them is not why I'm a good consultant for them. In fact, the, what I could offer them as a consultant that they would buy is basically nothing. The, mm. the list is ex- incredibly short. Mm-hmm. Um, so finally, I, I gave up on doing that. Okay. And one of the best decisions I made, because they're kind of a pain in the ass to deal with sometimes, was it a bit though discouraging leading up to that decision oh, to so hard? Okay, so how yeah. how did you manage that the emotional aspect of that? Because I, I think that's so important. You know, I, I wish I had a good answer, but I I really didn't. Okay, um, and that's actually I wish I had a better answer because that would have made my life a whole lot easier. Okay, it was it was nerve wracking the whole time, like trying to figure out why is this business not working? Okay, I'm good. I'm good at what I do. I think I know how business functions, and yet I can't get clients from this market that I know they need my help. Right. Okay. So it was frustrating. It was a grind. And at some point you said, what, what did you say to yourself? What was the internal conversation when you, when you made that decision to focus elsewhere? So the, the conversation that I was having with myself was really a conversation I was having with a bunch of friends, a bunch okay. of colleagues, yeah. just bouncing ideas off them, trying to explain what I'm doing, why it's not working, all the other options I could be doing. Yeah. And um, through that, I, I started talking with a lot of, uh, around that time, I launched the Monitoring Weekly Newsletter. Okay. And my idea with this was, you know, if I become more known in my space, maybe I'll get leads from that. Great. Okay. So I started that. 
and that was in uh, March 2017. Okay, so it's just over a year now. For the folks at home, that is what kind of newsletter? Like a roundup of articles, yep. or it is a a weekly link roundup. Okay, uh, basically, I scour the internet, look for uh, the great stuff on this on my topic, uh, write some commentary on it. Like I don't just dump a bunch of links. I yeah. actually I provide my expertise and my opinion on the articles as well. Nice. Okay. Can can we camp out there for just a minute? We'll come back yeah. to how this was part of your decision to refocus, but yep. how much time does it take you to do that? That newsletter um, roughly. So when I first started, it was like six to 10 hours. Yeah, it, was, it was probably twice or three times. Yeah. It was just brutal. Yeah. Uh, now I crank them out in about two to three hours. Okay. Uh, if I'm having, if I'm having an off day, uh-huh. like it, it might take me a bit longer, but okay. usually what I do to, mitigate that is i send it out on wednesday morning automatically uh-huh. i schedule it on tuesday night um, so i i have time blocked off my calendar on monday morning and tuesday morning to for just this newsletter and it's okay. about four times as much time as i actually need got it and what that what i end up doing is i will go through i haven't really segmented into two pieces of work i do mm-hmm. one is i go looking for the articles and then i have a bunch of systems that uh, bring them all, bring all this together to make it easy for me. Okay. Uh, but I look for the articles on Monday morning yep. and then Tuesday morning I have all the articles and now I just need to write blurbs for them. Got it. Okay. So by the end of Tuesday, I have the uh, thing scheduled for Wednesday morning. That's beautiful. Um, what was your original content? I mean, beyond just the, like, why did you decide to do it? You said getting known. Was there any other part of it or is just like, Hey, I just want people to know me. So it, <laughs> It was a thing that didn't exist. Uh-huh. I felt it should exist. Okay. Um, but really, I wanted to be more at the center of my world. Yeah. Uh, my book had not yet been released, so okay. I wasn't really that well known. Okay. So I wanted to be, I wanted to put myself at the center of everything. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> through that, I, I went and found a co founder who was a very well known in, in the space. Mm-hmm. And he and I were friends. I helped edit his book. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started together. Mm-hmm. He unfortunately had to drop out about eight weeks into it for family okay. obligations, uh-huh. but it just left me holding the bag, right. which I was kind of fine with. Yeah. So I've take, I've done it since uh, just myself since about uh, week number nine. Okay. Okay. How has that newsletter grown? Ooh, man. Uh, it's <laughs> so we hit, I hit, 850 subscribers in the first week. Okay. And that was through advertising to basically I hit up all the other newsletters in my space. Okay. Um, in the DevOps space. Yeah. I said, Hey, I have this new monitoring newsletter. Mm-hmm. Would you care to tell your audience about it? Like, sure. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. All of them have signed up for it, of course. Yeah. And I got a bunch of subscribers that way. Okay. So since then, it's been slow and steady growth. Okay. There, are, there are a few occasional bumps depending on like when people mention on Hacker News or mm-hmm. uh, opensource.com or whatever. Mm-hmm. But since then, I'm now at, I think, 3,200 subscribers this week. That's amazing. Would you characterize that as basically organic growth of like people who are on it tell other people about it or people find yeah, it basically. through searching? Or, okay. Yeah, so according to my, my metrics, uh, like Google Analytics and just mm-hmm. anecdote. Uh, most of my growth, like 90% of my growth is organic. Okay. The, in, the initial bump of like the 850 that seeded it mm-hmm. was, I guess you could call that advertising because I told someone to go do it. 
I'd call it outreach. But yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying for sure. And last question on this specifically, were there mistakes that you made and learned from along the way that you would do differently or I put a like lot that? of work into it in the early days, like uh-huh. way more than was necessary. Okay. Um, like I, I'm a writer, so I agonized over every word. Okay. And I, I try to make it just the absolute best thing I could make. Okay. And one day I was, I was having an off day, so mm-hmm. I totally phoned it in and I mm-hmm. spent like half an hour doing this entire thing. Okay. At the time it, I was spending like four to six hours writing. Got it. Okay. And I, I was feeling pretty good about this four to six hour mark. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Like I, I'm sick. I just want to go to bed, yeah. but I have to send this out. So I'm like banging out real quickly in half an hour and yeah. send it out. And a bunch of replies saying this is the best issue yet. <laughs> like, You've got to be kidding me. Oh, I love it when stuff like that happens. So, uh, so I was really annoyed at the time. And then like the next week I'm like, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> teaching moment. <laughs> right. Teaching moment. What did I learn here? What yeah. I learned is that I was spending way too much time and the audience wasn't getting anything. It wasn't getting better as a result of the more time I spent. Right. So I should spend less. So yeah. now the time I spend is, is not too much, but it's also not too little. Um, okay. If I need to phone it in, then I totally can. Yeah. And it's just as fine. Okay. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. So this happens, this newsletter thing starts around the time that you say, maybe there's a different market or maybe this isn't going to work <laughs> right. work at all. So, yep. okay. So how, how did that play into that transition for you, that pivot? Or- yeah. Uh, so this was super interesting because what started happening was in, while I was right before starting this, I was still trying to chase down these startups uh-huh. and the startups were just not biting. Yeah. They would talk to me, but they'd go nowhere in most cases, they wouldn't even talk to me. Right. Uh, a lot of them wanted me as an FTE. Right. And that was actually a learning and a learning aspect itself. Yeah. And that startups don't want consultants. They don't want contractors. They want FTEs. And one of the biggest reasons is that they don't have time to define what a role should look like. They expect the FTE to define it. Oh, that's so interesting. I was going to s- throw out my standard talking point, which is that Peter Thiel tells them in his book zero to one mm-hmm. don't hire consultants because <laughs> they don't they're not motivated by equity and they're not you know in your tribe enough they're not sharing the mission enough to be so i i at the at the ceo level and of the like the kinds of people who would read zero to one yeah that's probably true uh-huh. uh, but really the people who are hiring to, who are hiring me have not read the book Got it. And they're a little though, further down in the org. Yeah. yeah. So though they may believe that, yeah. that's not the primary motivator. Got the it. primary motivator is like, I would go to them and say, Hey, I want to help you with monitoring. And they're like, okay, well, like I just need an SRE to also do monitoring. Right. And I'm like, okay, what does that look like? Like I could help you with the monitoring. Let's right. break that down. They're like, no, no, no. I just want you to come in. We're moving fast and breaking things here. We don't have time for this conversation. <laughs> right. So startups, they were never interested in having these this why conversation. Okay. Uh, like the idea of tell me about your problems. Like what are you trying to solve? They were never interested in this. Yeah. And I didn't realize until afterwards that this was a really good symptom and actually a fantastic filtering criteria for me. Yeah. Uh, so startups, they don't want contractors almost entirely because they can't define a role. It's just uh, too, they, too much investment that they don't exactly. have time for. Okay. Right. So 
so the newsletter starts, right? And like about this time, I'm thinking, God, these these freaking startups. Like, <laughs> I'm I'm so over them, but I don't know what else to do. Okay. And I've been telling myself this whole time that I don't want to work with these really boring enterprise companies because they're really boring. Okay. And I'm and then I start getting outreach. I start getting these inbound leads from uh, things like, uh, "Hi, I'm a bank in Singapore, and mm-hmm. we have a hundred thousand employees." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't even know where to begin on that problem. But they're like, we have money and we have problems. Uh, can we pay you to, you know, solve them? That's a different tone than you're used to. How are, how are they finding you, Mike? Uh, they found me through the newsletter. Okay. Uh, some of them would read the book. Uh, so like later in, at the end of uh, last year, the book was released. Okay. And I started getting some leads through the book. Okay. Uh, but at the time it was the newsletter. So these people were reading the newsletter saying, Hey, this is, this is really cool. Like we have these really big painful monitoring problems. We're like, I had a client in Switzerland, uh, 50,000 employee company uh, all across Switzerland. And they're Mm -hmm. like, we have really painful problems uh, and we don't know what to do about them. We have Mm -hmm. initiatives that have gone nowhere for several years. Yeah. Can you just tell us what to do? That's so interesting. So let's drill into that. Folks at home are, probably wondering okay so do you, do you have <laughs> build a newsletter collect profit <laughs> right yeah what's in the middle you know uh, draw draw the owl draw two circles draw the owl like what's in the middle so yeah were you were you saying hey i am a consultant you can hire me in the newsletter how so it how so i put it in the footer uh, okay like i just put it the footer and it was in the footer every single issue and what, my what just, kind of message would have been there uh so i've, I've it's evolved over time sure but I think what originally it was something like I help companies improve monitoring, improve application and infrastructure monitoring. Um, it might have said SaaS companies. Like uh-huh. it was not, it was not a great positioning statement, but at it, least it said what I did and for who roughly. So it's just a very straightforward positioning statement. Yeah, very I simple. Could, it was very simple. Yeah, um, it's it's a little bit more nuanced now. Okay, but not sure. by much. Okay, and and that's it. That's all you did. Yeah, and that was it. Uh, okay. And if you if you want to know more about working with me, click this link, and it was just a link to my consulting page. Okay, a sort and, of services description page of some kind. Yeah. So okay. and and that's that's maybe an entire topic of, on its own was what that looked like. Sure. Uh, but I I had a friend come to me a while back and say he heard it from. One of his mentors, and one of his mentors is CEO of some big shop company here in the Bay Area. He says, uh, wells don't fit through funnels. And the meaning behind it is mm-hmm. that when you have a, a sales funnel, mm-hmm. uh, the small companies are going to go through your funnel. Mm-hmm. The big companies perceive themselves as having unique needs, so they're just going to ignore the funnel, and they're going to contact you directly. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And that's that's been my experience. Um mm-hmm. All of the small companies, they'll they'll do what I recommend. Yeah. Like they'll buy the book, they'll sign mm-hmm. up for the newsletter. Mm-hmm. But the big ones, no, they just email me. Hey, we have problems. Right. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So you were starting to get leads from the newsletter from that little footer of like, hey, I'm not just an editor of a newsletter. I also provide services. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So started getting leads. Um the lead, some of the leads pan out, some wouldn't. Uh, but all the ones that were really interested, uh, they were all fairly sizable companies. Yeah. And they were companies that, like, you would look at them and you would think, I 
I've never even heard of you. Oh, sure. And, yeah. And yeah. as it turns out, the <laughs> I, I've taken to calling these the boring, stodgy old companies because those companies have millions of dollars in profit and they're trying to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Somebody um, was telling me the other day about the second largest insurance company in the world. And I'm like, never heard of them. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. There's this whole strata of the world of business. Yeah. I think that's like that for a lot of us. Yes. So did you have to overcome a little bit of emotional resistance of like, I don't know if I, I wouldn't touch these people with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> I really did. Okay. So because I was so against working for enterprise, because okay. as, as an FTE, the, the math you do in your head is you're looking for not what this job is going to give me, but what does this job get me after that? Uh huh. Yeah. So you're always looking for that growth potential. Right. Uh, so you would never take a job with like HP because right. what is HP going to let you do after that? Like work for IBM? Cause right. you know, that's great <laughs> as, as a consultant. What I didn't realize is that math, that math changes. I uh-huh. look at HP and say, Oh wow. HP will let me work with IBM. And yeah. like, now I'm excited about it or, because it's or, a very different set of reasons. Yeah, exactly. Or this department in HP will let me work with 10 other departments in HP. Right. Yeah. And you don't get that opportunity as an FTE. Right. Right. Okay. So how long did you have to, you know, marinate in that new idea before you really that, embraced it? That was probably a, a few months and okay. taking a couple of those, taking on a couple of those uh, leads as clients okay. and starting to see what it was actually like inside. Yeah. Uh, w- the thing that really actually convinced me to embrace it mm-hmm. was I would get into these companies and I would say things like, uh, hey, we should measure stuff. Uh-huh. And they'd be like, oh my God, you are the second coming. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like, it's it just blowing their minds, this, this one-on-one level stuff. And how, how, I'd be like, wait until you see my 200 level. <laughs> right. How, so for the folks at home, how far behind the leading edge is what you just mentioned, the example of, hey, let's measure stuff? I, I mean, we're talking 15, 20 years sometimes. Okay. okay. Uh, the idea that, can you tell me what the performance of your website is right now? Right. Like, well, yes, I'll fire it up and I'll tell you. Can you tell me what that looked like 10 minutes ago? Right. Can you tell me what that did last week? And can you tell me the difference and the impact on your revenue? And like, as soon as you start walking them through that sort of thing, like, oh, wow, you're right. Like, we don't have that sort of capability. Mm-hmm. If we do, it's all in disparate systems and we can't tie it together. Right. And when you're talking infrastructure side, uh, I would say things like, um, so the, you just had an outage. What happened? And they right. say, well, I don't know. Right. Well, like this thing went down. What else went down? They say, well, I don't know. And, or things like, if these two components take longer to talk to each other, what's the impact on the rest of the application? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know. Right. And these are really simple starting points for pretty much every company. Like every right. startup would say, well, of course we have that. We had yeah. that on day one. Right. Right. But, these older companies, they, they didn't grow up in this, um, where this idea of an engineering first culture is like, of course we should measure things. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Okay. So I guess at this point you're digging the idea of working with bigger companies, big enterprise (laughs) companies. Yep. At some point uh, we were talking about this before I hit record, you had a sort of aha moment about how you how you message what you do or your, what Mm -hmm. your value actually is. Can you talk a little bit about where that happened? Yeah. Um, so 
I will say that this whole thing was not all roses for me. Sure. Uh, it, it got so hard at one point that earlier this year, I decided I'm just going to shut this whole thing down. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pivot to a completely different topic, mm-hmm. one that's much easier to sell. Because okay. it's actually pretty hard to reach engineering leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like, what if I just pivoted to a completely new thing? And mm-hmm. I started going down that path pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And I went to MicroConf, uh, a conference of uh, business bootstrappers, wonderful people there. Yeah. And in introducing myself, I'd say, yeah, I'm working on this new thing. And, but my background is actually in this other thing. Mm-hmm. And all, everyone I talked to would ask some variation, very politely worded of, oh, that's interesting. So tell me, why are you giving up on all that credibility and authority you have to chase this new thing? <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm onto you. <laughs> so, uh, so around this time, being around uh, bootstrappers who are very much product focused, yeah, I it suddenly occurred to me that I was trying to build a product business in this new thing, yeah, and yet I had never tried to build a product business in my old thing okay. in monitoring, right? And I'm like, in hindsight, I'm like, that's kind of dumb. Like, uh-huh. why didn't I try that? Yeah. So I have this massive list, and I've never tried to sell anything to these people mm-hmm. because most of the people on the list are not engineering leaders. They're uh, ICs. Okay. So they're not going to buy consulting at best. They can introduce me. Right. Uh, but some of the leads I get are engineering leaders, but they're a minority. Mm-hmm. So I just had just kind of ignored the list for uh, mostly generation purposes. Mm-hmm. Like if I can't sell consulting, then like whatever. So I decided let's build a, uh, what if I built a product business? Like okay. what would that look like? What would that have to look like? What could I sell to my list? Mm-hmm. So I decided to send out a survey, mm-hmm. really shitty survey. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty much everyone says surveys don't work. I agree with them. Surveys are pretty terrible. Yeah. Uh, but I kept getting back this, the same sort of feedback. Of I asked, what's your biggest problem in monitoring? What's the most frustrating thing for you? Right. And it was always some variation of, I don't know what to monitor. Okay. And I'm like, what? Like, that's so simple. Like, how could you <laughs> not know what to monitor? Right. So I started asking other asking friends and I had one, a very well-respected SRE. And I said, like, what do you think about this? He goes, you know, I'm going to have to be honest with you. Like, I don't actually know what to monitor either. I Google this every time. <laughs> and I'm okay. like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is so easy for me. Yeah. So I decided, like, that's, that's the aha moment for me was I had always thought things like, too many alerts was the biggest pain point. Mm-hmm. Where like I can't scale my monitoring system. Right. Uh, but no, like that's not the thing people care about. What people are actually having problems with was very was way simpler than that. Is that I don't know what to monitor. And I'm like I can solve that problem, and once I do, it leads into a whole host of other problems that we can also solve later. Mm-hmm. But like that's the starting point. And and to be clear, you mean solve that with a product? Right. Okay. Um, so this is where we get kind of a, an, an interesting take on this. So I, I decided I'm going to build this product. Yeah. And then about that time, I got two new leads that came in and said, hey, we have a problem. We need your help. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, that's cool. What's your problem? And after talking with them, it came out that we don't know what to monitor. <laughs> and I'm right. like, what? You've got to be kidding me. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. So what I did is I sold them a consulting engagement. Each okay. one, same engagement, uh, five figures. Right. And I walked in and I worked with their team and we figured out exactly what to monitor. And then I took 
all my notes from these two engagements, and that became the product. Wow, how fortuitous. I know, right? Like, it's crazy. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so um, so at this point, like, where are you? Like, you, you feel like you have it figured out? Is that fair to say? I, I, not not quite. Okay. Um, I'm almost there. Like, I, I know what I'm doing. Uh, my only trouble right now is that my lead generation machine, it's not, it's not the flywheel I want it to be. Okay. It still requires a fair amount of work. So what does lead generation look like for you today? There's the newsletter. Is that still mm-hmm. a source of leads? What, what is. does the sort of overall landscape of lead gen look like? So lead gen for me takes three prongs. Um, one is the newsletter. It's unpredictable and it's fairly low volume. Like I might get um, maybe one a quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I do, they're sizable leads because mm-hmm. of what I do. Yeah. So one a quarter, like even one a year, I'm, I'd be absolutely thrilled with. Sure. Uh, and then the other is cold outreach, which is something I'm testing. Uh-huh. Um, it's it doesn't work very well with engineering, right? Uh, and it really does not work with, with startups. Like, don't even try it with startups. Okay. Uh, you will burn your name so hard. <laughs> Wait, why do you think that is? If we can drill into that for a sec. Uh, because startups are primarily run by engineers and yeah. engineers have a visceral reaction to cold outreach. Sure. Yeah. That's... So if you want to reach them, reach them in a way that they're going to be receptive to, which uh-huh. is not cold outreach. Okay. Um, okay. So it's that engineering first culture. It's just oil and water with yes, cold outreach. Exactly. Okay. But that's, but that's not true for large enterprises because yeah. They they freely admit we have problems and we're happy to pay people for the problems, and they also know that uh, sometimes to find solutions to problems they present themselves. We don't go looking for them, right? So okay, cold, so, cold outreach works better there. Um, okay, so that's something I'm testing. Yep, um, and referrals referrals are still a big part of my business. Like they make up the bulk of my leads. Okay. The book has I got to fit in there somewhere, right? Like yeah. So the the book is the book I get like maybe four to six leads a year off of right uh-huh, now. I sure. mean, it's, it's almost a full year since it's been out. Right. Um, I kind of lump it with a newsletter and how I think about it. But yeah. it's, it's just so unpredictable when those show up. When okay. they do, they're really interesting. But it's okay. so unpredictable. Got it. So what? Um... What other experiments do you have on the on the slate for you for know, next year? Con- yeah, conference conference talking. Okay, uh, con- yeah, doing conference gigs. The reason is my markets, the DevOps, uh, site reliability, system yeah. administration, uh, where we primarily learn new stuff, where we are most receptive to working with someone, yeah. is at conferences and meetups. Okay, so you can't just attend. Because then you're just some schmuck attending a conference. Right. You have to speak. Yeah. So that's my new strategy. I have two speaking gigs lined up. So we'll see how those go. That's great. So let's break that down a little bit. How did you identify the conferences that you thought would be strategically valuable to speak at? Um, right now, I don't actually have a list of strategically valuable. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I kind of I know the idea. I have a heuristic for the kinds of conferences I want to be going to. Okay. Um, I don't want to be going to conferences like um, there's conferences for cloud native stuff and like Amazon conferences, like mm-hmm. this, the places where you would expect to find really modern companies. Yeah. I don't want to go to those because 
Yeah. I'm there's no low hanging fruit to me for me to solve. Okay. When I go to a client, I want to be seen as someone who can help solve a whole lot of problems and I can do it fairly quickly. Okay. So the low hanging fruit is very important to me. Yeah. Uh, coming in to solve a problem that's going to take six months is as a first engagement, uh, really bad. Like it doesn't work very well. Okay. Uh, so going to, going to conferences where older companies go mm-hmm. is much more valuable. Like the VMware conferences or the Cisco conferences, like those are going to have more people like what I'm looking for. That's super interesting. Okay. So that's maybe your first pass of like kind of putting together a short list of yeah. conferences. Are you looking at who sponsors it? Or when you say like VMware goes there or Cisco goes, Cisco goes there, like, how are you making that determination? So um, for those, it's actually like VMware's conference. VMware okay, World, got it. The one or, they're uh, hosting. Yeah, or, Cis- or Cisco's uh, Cisco Live. Okay. So um, the, the heuristic, for, for the, we, oh, sorry, could we call the heuristic look for, like, legacy-type yes. <laughs> vendors and their yep. conferences? That's who makes it on the short list. Got it. Yeah, yeah so that's that's like a first pass, and... Uh, that gives me a, a pretty short list of very large conferences. Got it. For the other smaller conferences, I'm looking for uh, vendor-specific conferences. Okay. Like, if I know that someone uses Zabbix as a monitoring tool, Zabbix mm-hmm. is super old school, mm-hmm. but I should totally be there because they would be interested in me helping solve their problems. And Got it. anyone using that is probably just as old school. That's super interesting. These um, heuristics or these kind of filtering mechanisms that you've come up with for, I would almost call them demographic, you know, like the baby boomer generation of monitoring tools. (laughs) You're looking for where they congregate. Yep. So yeah, for for me, I'm looking more at signs that they might be in my market. Right. Um, And because I can't define my market along rigid lines, like they're in X industry versus Y. Right. I have to look at how they behave and how they think. I'm looking much more at worldview and maturity level than anything else. Right, which is, I'm not sure there's a shortcut to figuring that no. out. <laughs> I really, you know, I mean, I, I I, probably should say there is because I kind of get paid to help people figure that stuff out, but I'm not sure there's just some one single shortcut to figuring that out. I think your journey is yeah. very representative. Right. The one of the biggest problems is that the kinds of companies I work with are by their nature the ones that no one thinks about. Right. Yeah. They're um not they're huge but not super visible. Right. And maybe they like it that way. I don't know. So you have great credibility. You're an O'Reilly author, you you're the editor of this popular newsletter. Do you feel like you can come in and pitch yourself? I don't think you're pitching as a keynote speaker at VMware's VMworld or whatever, but where are you, where, where's your starting point for trying to get speaking engagements? How high up the ladder are you starting? Uh, so I just, I start with the base level speaking engagement. Okay. The kinds of conferences that I'm going to right now, because I don't have a history in speaking at conferences. Yeah. I'm going to ones that are not strategically important. Okay. Um, I'm speaking at DevOps days, Kansas city in yeah. uh, October and that'll be a good conference, but I I make new contacts, but I probably won't get any leads from it. Yeah, you're paying, you're paying your dues, right? Right. That's exactly what I'm doing. Is yeah. I'm I'm getting conference speaking gigs behind me, right? And and doing a few of those so that when I do start going to the more uh, strategically important ones for me, I can say, yes, I am an accomplished speaker. Look mm-hmm. at all these speaking engagements I've already done. 
Okay. That's, yeah, that's really what I was getting at is, um, you know, how you're laying the foundation for the ones that really mm-hmm. are the lead gen juices there. So what do you think? Yeah, that's and, maybe a year of paying your dues or? Uh, so in my world, we can often get by with a lot less. Okay. I'm thinking, uh, I, I don't think about it in terms of time. I think about it in terms of conferences. Yes. Uh, if I can get six or seven conferences under my belt, yep. then that's enough credibility to uh, speak. Okay. At the larger ones. Great. That's super, super useful. Okay. I have used the whole hour and <laughs> I feel like we could keep talking because actually I, I love hearing from authors what they've learned from that. Mm-hmm. But also um, I think I'm wearing folks out at the listeners at least, <laughs> maybe you with all my questions. Um So let's wrap it up, Mike, and then maybe all I right. can come back and we can, I, I'd love to talk to you again about, you know, what it takes to become an author, what you've learned from that. Absolutely. I would love to talk about that. Cool. Okay. Well, we'll leave that for a later date. Um, All right. For now, how can folks find out more, sign up for your newsletter? I mean, what do you want people to do next if they're interested in learning more? Sure. So you can find out, you can sign up for the Monitoring Weekly Newsletter at Mm monitoring.love. Yes, that is a domain name. Uh, (laughs) And if you're interested in in finding out more about the book, practicalmonitoring.com. Mike, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's my conversation with monitoring specialist Mike Julian. What did you think of this episode? I'd love to hear from you. Philip at philipmorganconsulting.com. 